One time, I went away to a cabin for a few days by myself in Tennessee. My plan was to fast and pray and songwrite. I would spend the day thinking about life and writing things down. I would go sit outside on the deck looking out into the forest and ponder deep thoughts. It was winter, and I sat inside stoking the wood furnace and watched outside as the fresh snow piled up on the trees and chairs. I walked outside to set up my camera on a timer and to take a picture of myself holding my ukulele and gazing out amongst the trees. It was going to be the cover to an album I wanted to release, and the title was going to be God, a love-hate relationship. Man, I'm so glad I never made that album. Outside of the whole Robert Frost emo vibe that I had going on at that time, it clearly would have been a bad decision and a horribly misinterpreted title. What I was trying to get at is that being in a relationship with God is a sharpening thing. And sometimes God's love is painful, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes you love it and sometimes you hate it, but it's always worth it. What people tell you about when you choose to become a Christian is mainly all the good stuff. Like realizing God is good, that you're going to heaven, having your sins taken away, being friends with God, and so on. While it's all true, there's another side to it all. Maybe you could call this the B-side of faith. It comes with questions like, why do bad things still happen? Or, what about those who don't go to heaven? Or, why do I still sin if Jesus took it away? There's a load of these questions, and there's a load of nicely theologically wrapped answers that we learn to go with them. We take these answers with us as far as we can, but at some point, they just don't work the same way they used to. When I was in my third year of university, I decided to take a semester off and answer God's call for missions on my life. I wanted to be really hardcore, so I chose a trip that was village trekking in Niger and preaching the gospel. Apparently, no one else wanted to do that, so they closed that trip and instead sent me with a team to Mauritius, a tiny island about 600 miles off the coast of Madagascar that was pretty much a tourist destination. You probably haven't heard about it, but just search it on the map and then zoom out and you'll see what I mean. Yes, I actually lived there. Instead of village trekking, we were going to be starting Bible studies at a university. Mauritius happened to be one of the most religiously diverse countries in Africa. It was predominantly Hindu, with a large Catholic, Islamic, and Buddhist population. I used to go on runs through the city with Hillsong pumping in my headphones, like, take, take, take it all, take, take, take it all, like old school Hillsong. I would play air drums as I ran down the street, probably looking like an idiot. I remember at one point stopping and just breaking down in tears, thinking, if I really believe what I say I believe, then most of the people I run by every day aren't going to heaven. I felt the same way again after my trip to the UK, like I had been relying on some nicely theologically wrapped answers for too long. I think the problem with having those answers as a foundation isn't that they might be wrong, but it's more that I don't own them. It's like the answers are stowed away in some part of my brain and doesn't really come from my heart. I noticed this about my life at the same time I noticed that I had experienced a lot of new things I didn't have a grid for theologically. Because of this, I stopped for a bit and enrolled in a discipleship school in the south of Spain. It was going to be six months of studying the Bible, gaining wisdom from teachers, and making a plan for ministry afterwards. Sitting in that classroom, I experienced for the first time what it meant to own what you preach, to have a message not just come from your words, but come from your life. In this season, I started to write a series of songs that were pretty much me in the process of owning simple truths I had said I believed for years. As simple as it sounds, the first one is just about love and all the wonderful, horrible, simple, and complicated paradoxes that go with it. 
Oh, what I know now is not the same thing I knew from the start. The love's less like a game, and it's more like a work of art. But boy, does it take time. Truly, be refined. The ups and the downs and the times I've gone around the block to end up the same place again. And oh, oh, how it hurts. To realize that the feeling's not there, but oh, oh, what it's worth to believe that life's not fair. 'Cause if I treat the world just like I treat myself. Well, I'd hate it. I'd waste it. I'd run away in fear. I guess that's why you came here. 'Cause I can't seem to grasp all the things that I claim I am living for. This kingdom of yours costs too much for the rich, so it's built for the poor. If it's all just right in my head, then why can't I feel it more? It makes good people die. It makes hard people start to cry. It leaves everyone wondering why the world don't make sense. It's the love of a god and the love of a friend. I mentioned that after this school, we had to make a plan for ministry. Everyone had to give a presentation. My plan was simple: I was going to buy a van and get people to drive all over Europe with me, worshiping in different countries. I probably looked pretty lame compared to the other presentations on things like starting a coffee shop whose proceeds would benefit sex trafficking victims, or going to Swaziland and building an orphanage. I actually even hand drew all of my PowerPoint slides. After the presentation, people were able to ask questions. One of my leaders asked what my budget was, and I was pretty much like, "Well, a van would probably cost about four thousand euros, so I guess that's my budget." About a year after the presentation, I had everything ready. We were a week from the launch date. The route was planned. Contacts were made. I had about eight people who committed three weeks of their lives to serve my vision. A couple of them had even flown over from the states. The only thing missing was I didn't have a van yet. I mean. Honestly, looking back, if I was a participant on that trip, I would have been like, "Peace out! I'm going to go join a real missions trip somewhere." Especially if I had flown over from the states, I would have been thinking, "Well, 
At least I have a nice few weeks in Denmark. I was cutting it close, probably closer than anything in life before, and that's saying a lot. But I finally found something. It was a beautiful nine-passenger, big green 1999 Volkswagen bus. Until I met my wife, it was probably the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Or actually probably until my roommate drove it when I told him he couldn't and wrecked it. It wasn't so beautiful that day, but that's a different story. I quickly flew up to Bilbao in northern Spain to buy it. I remember it so clear. I bought the van at 1 p.m. and jumped straight in it and drove all the way to Copenhagen nonstop. To this day, I don't know how I did that. Surely I slept somewhere, but I don't remember it. 30 hours later, I arrived in Copenhagen. I had picked up a roof rack somewhere along the way, and I distinctly remember getting out of my car to greet Nicholas, one of my good friends, joining the trip from Germany. Instead of just giving me a hug and congratulating me on the safe and timely arrival, he looked up at my roof rack and remarked about how inefficient on fuel it had been, and then proceeded to step up on my bumper, shake it back and forth, testing its durability until it popped off. Welcome to road trips with Germans. I was ready to go to bed. I originally wanted to call this trip the Wagonacle, like how we were bringing the presence of God like the tabernacle, but in a wagon. If you don't get it, neither did most people, which is why we landed on calling it Burn Wagon, something a bit more marketable. It ended up being one of the most incredible things I had ever done, and it's still going to this day. Not that exact van, but the yearly trip. That year, we drove through Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Germany, Switzerland, and France. It was packed full of adventure and big vision for how we believed God was going to move in Europe. But I also started to realize that I couldn't focus too much on the big vision without first focusing on small groups of people. In our charismatic church culture, it's easy to recognize what's highlighted on social media or what's sexy in the moment. But in Europe, all I saw were groups of people faithfully gathering to worship God, believing for their city and country to be changed. We're talking like meeting with one pastor and his few members in an old church on a Swedish island with no cars and only bicycles. There's nothing sexy about that. This became my pattern for years as I decided to make my home in Spain and would travel from there. I'd go out on crazy trips talking about God bringing revival to Europe, seeing incredible things, and then come back to a little village in Spain thinking, what just happened? It was a really strange way to live, but something I came to love was the time I would have to talk with God about everything and all of his thoughts. I took so many walks on those quiet streets in that village talking with God like he was walking right next to me. It always came down once again to the simple truths in life and mainly came down to the fact that nothing I did really mattered if I wasn't walking close to him the whole time. Constant and faithfully 
senses emotions won't change your rhythms of grace toward me and if I'm out in the waters in valleys or high on the mountain Consoles me the view that I see. You're the heart that I run to, the home I belong to, so welcoming. And there's nothing more simple, yet more mind blowing than how, how you love me. coming home from the UK after leading worship in front of thousands of people, and the next Sunday I was at my local church of a couple hundred in Malaga, in the back doing sound for the worship team. They would always ask how my trips were, probably a bit unsure what I was actually doing with my life, and then welcome me back. Still to this day, there's nothing like a Spanish grandma reaching up, grabbing your neck, and pulling you in for two big kisses on the cheeks. It was great. When I made the decision to live in Spain, I made a commitment to myself to give it at least five years. I figured that would be long enough to invest in something and start to see a lasting change. In the end, it would turn out to be about four and a half years before I moved. I look back at a lot of different moments and relationships, but mostly I look back and think about how much I changed. I felt like in a spiritual sense, I literally went from being a boy to a man. I also can't think of any other time in my life with such extremes. I'd go from feeling awesome like I was super important to God's plan for Europe to going through things like breakups, which are just really hard. I don't know what I would have done without the Holy Spirit in that season. 
And by the Holy Spirit, I mean the embodiment of the Holy Spirit that went by the name of Guillermo, who was my roommate this whole time. I'd be sitting on the couch off way too deep contemplating my life, and he would bust in the apartment after working real estate all day, singing worship songs and saying something like, Hello, men of God. If he saw I was down, he would probably walk over and slap me in the face or jump on me. We all need a Guillermo in life. Even with all the highs and lows, whether I was by myself or with other people, there's just nothing like walking with God. different when you're by my side cause where there is love fear cannot hide so come with me whoa come with me whoa 